this morning we are continuing our series, God Through My iPod. And, uh, and I'll, I'll get to the song that I'm going to introduce in a second. Uh, but first, 10 years ago, uh, one of my favorite bands at the time was playing in a folk festival in Sandpoint, Idaho. Anybody been to Sandpoint, Idaho? Uh, they have a, a few people. That's good. They, they, they've, they've got a great music festival there that happens uh, uh, in August every year, and I think it actually just happened this past weekend. Uh, but 10 years ago, me and a few friends drove down for this music festival uh, to see one of my favorite bands, and uh, that band's name is Nickel Creek. Uh, so... It's, uh, it was about an eight-hour drive there, so we left early in the morning because we had to get there uh, in time to stand in line because there isn't seating, so you got to stand in line all day and hopefully get a good, good seat for the, the show in the evening. Uh, so we left uh, you know, before the sun was up and drove all the way down, uh, down to Sandpoint. We got in line, we waited in line all day long, and uh, finally in the evening uh, when, the, when the gates opened, we rushed in and we... Uh, had seats right in front of the stage, uh, like five feet from the stage, uh, and it was awesome. And so I got to see my favorite band there. I was introduced to another great band, the Wayland Jennies at that time. Uh, so if you haven't checked them out, you need to check them out as well. Uh, but yeah, we, I, it goes down for me in my history as the best concert I've ever been to in my life. Um, and I've been to a lot of concerts, uh, but there was something special about that concert for me. Uh, the musicianship... Uh, Nickel Creek is comprised of uh, basically three members, Sean and Sarah Watkins, which are brother and sister, and uh, Chris Thiley, who is the best mandolin player who's ever walked the face of the earth. Um, and that's just not my opinion. He's, he, he's a prodigy. He's been making mandolin albums since he was seven years old. Uh, and so I got to see it 10 feet from him, uh, and uh, the display of musicianship was incredible. And it was this outside venue. It was right uh, on the lake there, and the sun was setting, and it was just this, uh, just this epic evening. Uh, but we had to get back uh, for work and stuff the next day, and so we decided to drive through the night to get back the next morning. Uh, so I was there with uh, two of my friends, uh, John and uh, Betty, and uh, and and so we, we we set out for the drive home. Uh, it was quite eventful. It, I was driving a, a new car to me at the time. It was, uh, you know, the car I still drive, my 2003 Blue Cavalier. I hadn't, I hadn't yet driven it in the evening, uh, so I didn't know that when I, when I drove my car, uh, when I turned the lights on, the lights were actually pointed, like, straight down. And so we, you know, it's dark out, and I go to turn my lights on, and I can't see a thing. And so we're trying to figure out, and I'm not mechanically inclined, I have no idea how to fix that, and so, um, you know, i got to find stuff in the car to, fi- to figure this out with, and all I can find is a bunch of Tim Hortons uh, cups, paper cups that we used uh, on the way down, and so what I did is I wedged these Tim Hortons cups underneath my lights in my car, and it raised the headlights just enough so I could actually see the road a little bit, so that seemed to work out fine, and I've been using the same system ever since. <laughs> Um, and so we're trying to make good time. Uh, we get, uh, you know, an hour out of Sandpoint. I got pulled over by the police because uh, I was speeding. Um, and, uh, but I sweet-talked my way out of a ticket. So that's, I think, the only time that's happened in my life. So I was grateful for that. Uh, and then so we kept going after that. 
And uh, pretty, pretty soon after we left, uh, Betty, who was quite concerned about being too tired for work the next day, decided that she should sleep in the back seat. Um, and so she fell asleep in the back seat, and John and I were exhausted. And I, I can remember, uh, it was, we were, I was the most tired I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, we were both terrified of falling asleep at the wheel, and we were like switching constantly. Like every 20 minutes, we'd have to switch. And we were like pushing each other. And I remember us having like the scream competition. You know, Betty's trying to sleep and getting annoyed in the back. And uh, so, so we're like, which one of John and I can scream the most like a girl? I remember us doing this together. Um, so we're just screaming in the car, trying to keep ourselves awake. Um, at this point, you know, we're three-quarters of the way through the drive, and we are just exhausted, and Betty is asleep, and uh, we were getting, like, so frustrated and angry and bitter because she felt like it was her right to have this uh, sleep on the way home because um, she had to work the next day. Um, there was one point where we slammed on the brakes and pretended like there was, we were going to crash, and uh, she woke up in this huge panic and was freaking out, and we felt like she, she deserved that. Um, <laughs> And then we get back, finally, I, it was, uh, the sun was just coming up, and we're, we get back into Calgary, um, and, I, and John uh, and Betty both live, you know, different sides of the city, north side of the city, they're both in the north, and so we drive up to drop John off, uh, and I was scared, I was so tired, I was scared that I wouldn't be able to make it back to my house without falling asleep. Um, and so we dropped John off, and... Uh, and then Betty just assumed that I would drop her off at her house. But I was so frustrated and angry with her. Um, I told her no, and she could get out, and I made her take the train. <laughs> it was, I was tired. I said, you can take the train. Um, and so I was nice to drop John off, and she took the train home, and uh, I went home after that. I'm not a very nice guy when I've had no sleep. Um, so Betty, if you watch this, I'm sorry. Um, Anyways, that's my long intro to my story of when I went to see Nickel Creek Live. Uh, again, one of my favorite bands. And this, the song that I'm going to play for you this morning uh, is, uh, isn't really indicative of their musical excellence, but it's so simple and honest, uh, and it's actually probably my favorite song of theirs. So um, without further ado, let's take a listen. The lyrics will be on your screen. Sometimes I pray for a slap in the face Then I beg to be spared Cause I'm a coward 
Beautiful song, hey? I love that song. I, I like it, as I said, because it's simple, uh, but it's so honest. What will be left when I draw my last breath besides the folks I've met and the folks who, who've known me? Will I discover a soul-saving love or just the dirt above and below me? Uh, the three members of Nickel Creek grew up in uh, the Christian faith. And at the time when they wrote this 10 years ago, um, you know, young adults wrestling with their faith, wrestling with doubt. Um, you know, Chris Thiley, the one that wrote the song, uh, can I be used, expresses this, can I be used to help others find truth when I'm scared I'll find proof that it's a lie? Can I be led down a trail dropping breadcrumbs that prove I'm not ready to die? And I think through the years I've, I've found those words... Um, They've resonated with me quite deeply, you know, as someone who, uh, you know, it's my job and my work as a pastor to help others find truth, you know, but there's always this, um, you know, if, if I'm honest, like there's always this question of, do I have it figured out enough to actually help others? Can I be led down this trail dropping breadcrumbs that proves that I'm not as ready um, as I thought, as I think I am? And then if you notice throughout the lyrics, um, you know, there's, there's kind of three stanzas. And the, first, um, and the first one, he says, I took a promise, you know, in the past tense. Uh, the second one says, I can't keep my promises, you know. So it's like this development of relationship and faith that many of us experience when we, uh, if we've decided that we're going to try and follow Jesus, you know, we, we take a promise and we realize as we're journeying with Jesus that we can't quite keep our end of the bargain, that's not quite as easy as we thought. Um, and so I resonate with this, that I can't keep my promises. And, uh, and the song 
you know, ends in this present tense, uh, I'll take your promise, though I know nothing's safe. And the irony of the song and the irony of these doubts that are being played out in the song is that the song is, uh, it's written as a prayer. And, and so, so it catches me that, you know, Chris Thiele, the writer, is wrestling with his faith, but he's wrestling with his faith in the context of this prayer, in the context of the song. Does God exist? Is there a right religion? Why are we here? How do I handle suffering and tragedy? And at the same time, a good God. What happens to us when we die? What am I here for? What about the claims of science or history that seem contrary to the Bible? And I'm not going to answer those questions. I just, I start with them to simply ask you, have you ever asked them? Have you ever asked questions like that? And have you found satisfactory answers to them? Um, before I go forward, I just want to give quick credit to you know, a few different books. Uh, Myth of Certainty by Daniel Taylor, The Sin of Certainty by Peter Enns, and Water to Wine uh, by Brian Zand, who uh, you know, these books I've, you know, I've read in preparation for this talk, so I just want to give credit there where credit's due. But these are, these are powerful questions. Why does God exist? And how do I know that things are true uh, in a world where things are proven by science? You know, how do we... Um, understand the claims of scripture and experience in the midst of science. And yet, there's something about the series on a whole that I, that I feel like is part of the key to understanding this, is that we listen to these songs and they're wrestling with truth. Uh, and I remember a conversation that I had with Steve Bell uh, years and years ago, and we were talking about music, talking about songwriting, and he was, he was explaining to me why he felt that music was so powerful, and he said that um, basically there's a limit to our words. Our words can only express so much, and that where our words fall short, uh, melody fills in the gaps. And isn't that true? Where our words fall, fall short, melody fills in the gaps, that the melody says the things that our words can't quite express. And to me, that, tell, that tells me, and it resonates with me that this is true, because uh, why is it that when we listen to music, it draws us in uh, even deeper than just rational, logical thought? You know, when there's logical thought, when there's questions, and it's combined with um, art and mystery and music, somehow it draws us into an even deeper place. That's why a song like this can, can move me, can draw something out of me. Music is powerful because there's more to the human experience than just mere logic. So when was the first time that your simple worldview, your simple faith was challenged, that you questioned it? Or maybe you, you feel like you never even have taken a step of faith uh, because even from the get-go you felt like there was too many challenges or doubts to help you take that step. For me, I remember quite clearly I was uh, working as a young uh, cabin leader, counselor at a, at a camp in southern Manitoba, Tur Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. I was a you know, 15, 16-year-old, um, basically leading others for the first time, trying to have spiritual conversations and, uh, with my, uh, with my uh, campers. And there was one evening where we were having a conversation, and one of my campers had asked, uh, um, 
basically, um, what happens when a child dies and they haven't uh, confessed Jesus as Lord was basically their question. And I answered with complete certainty, because uh, I knew, because I'd, you know, I'd learned this from somewhere along the line, that, well, God actually knows when somebody um, is ready, and, and the Bible talks about how, you know, when you're a certain age, um, then you become responsible, and before that you're not responsible, or some very simplistic answer like that that I thought was satisfactory. Um, and little did I know that uh, our camp director at the time was sitting outside of our cabin listening to our Bible discussion. Uh, and the next day they came to me and they said, I just want to talk to you about the, you know, you said the Bible says this and this, and I just wanted you to know that the Bible doesn't actually say that. Um, and I'm not saying you're wrong, but I'm just saying that, you know, your certainty of saying like the Bible says this and this and this um, was, unf- it's unfounded. And, uh, and then I realized that people have been you know, asking that question since St. Augustine, um, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. So uh, I wasn't uh, the first one to ask and wrestle with that question. But when for you was the first time that your simple worldview was challenged? That you you had kind of these box answers, the simple understanding, and you came across uh, something somebody said, something somebody challenged you with, you know, some evidence or claim that was made, and you felt like your whole world kind of crumbled under that claim. And I want to explore why that happens. There was a development uh, in culture, in history, over the last you know, 150 years or so, uh, what's referred to as uh, modernity, or the modern era. Uh, and the modern era um, is it's defined by a number of things, but I, I want to focus on two things in particular this morning. Um, what I'm going to refer to as empiricism, which I'll define in a second, and individualism. Empiricism is basically the philosophical belief that you can only come to understand truth um, by reason and rationality. And, uh, and this was kind of kick-started by, by Nietzsche, by Friedrich Nietzsche in, uh, in the late 19th century. So before modernity had even really taken hold of before the, what's known as the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution and the Industrial Revolution, all, all these things happened. But before all of that, Friedrich Nietzsche um, was flirting with this idea that, we, that would grow into empiricism. And have you ever heard the phrase, God is dead? Uh, so that was popularized by Nietzsche, even though he didn't come up with it. But, that, but this concept of God is dead uh, came from Nietzsche. And this, this idea, if you, if you can track with me here for a minute, actually came uh, from a parable that he wrote called the parable of the madman. So uh, I'm just going to go back here. I'm going to read you this parable. Um, and uh, is it okay if we dive into a little bit of philosophy this morning? Is that okay with everybody? Yeah, Okay. Um, so the parable of the madman, it's okay with somebody up here, so I'm just going to go with him. Um, have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? That's another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? 
as he emigrated. So thus they yelled and they laughed at him. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchanged this earth from its sun? Whither is, whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns, are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has he not become colder? Is night is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's to decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet known has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? I'm just going to pause and read that line again. Is, it, is not this, the greatest of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become God simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars requires time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars, and yet they have done it themselves. And then the, uh, the madman goes on, and he, referring to the churches, he says, what after all are these churches now if they are not the tombs of God? There's a lot in there, and I didn't expect that you caught all of it. Um, but hopefully you caught just the gist of it. What Nietzsche was saying, uh, he wasn't necessarily saying it was a good thing that God was dead as many people make him out to have been saying. Uh, what he was saying was uh, that because of the way that he saw humanity moving, that humanity had killed God because they removed their need for God. Um, even though he was an atheist, he wasn't saying this is a good thing. He just observed that this is where it was happening. It was, it was prophetic. And, that, and that's why um, at the end he was talking about how this madman came before his time that he himself is this, this person that's coming before modernity, before it all happened, and saying, I can see this happening, that we are actually going to remove our need from God. Because he saw the trajectory of rational, empirical thinking. That humanity was going to get to this place where it's only through rational understanding that we would take anything as verifiable and as trustworthy and therefore, we've removed the need for mystery, removed the need for faith, 
and we've actually killed God. What, um, what Nietzsche saw as an atheist, Soren Kierkegaard, another philosopher, saw as a Christian. I'm going to refer to a couple of quotes from, from him a little bit later. But both of these men came before modernity saying, this is the trajectory of where we're going. There's going to be a time uh, where people basically have removed all need in their lives for God. Uh, and if you notice the line that I repeated, uh, because they have elevated themselves to a God-like position. And so Nietzsche came with this idea of the overman or the superman, basically saying that, that through human ascent, through human advancement, humanity was going to get to such a point that they were going to be able to, you know, uh, basically lead themselves and be self-sufficient. Because humanity would put themselves in the place where God had previously been. So this empirical, rational thinking, according to Nietzsche, was man positioning himself into the place of God. Modernity was also marked by individualism, uh, which is simply, just as all of this was happening, um, and it was happening before this already, uh, but I won't get all, into all that, but there was a rejection of basically a corporate collective thinking and tradition. So anything that was... Th- you know, from you know, somebody before us thought or a group thought um, or we inherited this tradition or this faith was rejected because everything new was better. Um, everything old was uh, from a pre-scientific empirical period, so we can't really trust it, and so we got to trust whatever's coming else, so whatever's coming that's new. So we have this movement, this culture that you and I now live in and we breathe in of individualism and empiricism. But before Nietzsche, before Soren Kierkegaard, before modernity, uh, there was Thomas. You know, almost two millennia before the rise of modernity, we have an empirical individualist in Scripture. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John 20. John 20, verse 24. And so it says, As one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed Didymus, or the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Excuse me. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were there again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before Jesus was standing among them, peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. So we have this character, Thomas, the disciple of Jesus, Nicknamed the twin, which I think is a good nickname for him. Uh, It might be because he actually had a twin. Uh, But let's suppose this morning that he's nicknamed twin because he has two sides to himself. There's the doubting side and there's the faith side. We all have two sides to ourselves. I I remember uh, when I was in Bible college... Uh, there was a set of identical twins uh, in college. Um, I couldn't tell them apart. 
And, uh, and sometimes I thought maybe there's just one of them. There must be just one. They just look the same and people just pretend there's two. Uh, to make things worse, uh, they, look, they look the same, they're both quiet, and so they never talk, so you couldn't even dis- differentiate them from personalities. Completely silent, introverted individuals, um, and, uh, and their names were Brent and Brett. So we have, sorry, Brent and Brad, Brett, yeah. Brent and Brad, that's their names. See, I can't even remember their names anymore. Um, Brent and Brad, so one syllable names start with B, and I had no clue which one was which. And, uh, and so I just felt bad because it was like, you know, you're heading into second semester, and I still don't have a clue who's who. Uh, and then it like dawned on me, like their names are so similar. I think I could actually get away with this. So every time I passed one of them in the dorms or in the hallways, I would just simply say, hey, Brett. Hey, Brent. It kind of sounds like Brad, kind of sounds like, what was the other one? <laughs> sounds like Brad, sounds like Brent. And I f- if I just mumbled my way through it, and I did this like for, for the rest of the time from that time, Going forward, hey Brett, hey Brett, hey Brett, and they 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 and they, and they're so nice and quiet they would never correct me. So I think they I don't think they caught on, but I wouldn't know if they did. Um, but we can't tell them apart. And I think uh, sometimes we are we have these twin personalities where we don't even know who we are. We're a little bit of Brent. We're a little bit of Brad. We're a little bit of doubting Thomas. We're a little bit of faithful Thomas. We're really Brent. Pick up what I'm saying? That's who we are. We're Brett. We're a mix of both. Sometimes we can't discern the difference. And Soren Kierkegaard, who I was mentioning earlier, says that no one is so terribly deceived as he who does not himself suspect it. He was saying it is important actually for us to identify this twin personality within us. And we see here... Doubting Thomas, he says, unless I see the nails in his hands, put my fingers into them. And so do you, do you hear this? This I, this is individualism. I, me, I need to have this individual sensory experience so that I can make up my own rational mind, right? So the, the I part, the individualist. See is his empiricism, his empirical um, thought process coming out. Unless I can touch it, unless I can uh, see his wounds, unless I can put my finger into the wounds, touch his hands, touch his side, unless I can physically verify the resurrection, I will not believe. An individual empiricist, 2,000 years before it became in vogue. And here we are, and I think we can relate to Doubting Thomas. I think we can relate to the song. I think we can, there's a part of us that just resonates with us because uh, we have this twin personality inside of us. But I want to ask the question this morning of, at what point was Thomas a disciple of Jesus? At what point did Thomas become a disciple of Jesus? Was it at this moment? 
was it prior? Was it later? The modern answer would be that at this moment where Thomas finally had this individual sensory experience that he could verifiably touch the wounds of Jesus, at that moment he became a disciple of Jesus. But I would say that far prior to this resurrection experience, to this moment that we have in Scripture in John 20, that Thomas was already a disciple of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because faith, as we understand it, we've actually defined through our individualistic empirical lens and we've misunderstood what faith and discipleship is actually really about. Let me explain this. John, uh, or in Galatians 2.16, it says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to use this as an example, but we see all sorts of statements like this through Scripture, faith in Christ, um, and uh, that, that Paul uses specifically, um, but we see it through the Gospels as well, those have faith. What, there's two challenges that we find in our modern mindset when it comes to a verse like this, when it comes to a concept like faith. The first problem that we have is that we believe that uh, belief and faith are the, are, are the same thing. Or sorry, are, are different things. We, we, we identify... Wait, let me go back a second. Um, belief and faith in Scripture are the same word. That's what I wanted to say. Belief and faith in Scripture are the word pistis. Can you say pistis with me? Sorry, it's not an inappropriate word. It's actually a Greek word. Say pistis with me. Everybody's like, pistis. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that. So we have the word pistis in the Greek language. Uh, the problem with, with our English language is pistis can occur in the Greek, which the Bible was written in, because uh, English wasn't invented yet. Pistis can occur in the Greek in a verb form or a noun form. But in English, we actually don't have a verb form of faith. We, we don't say faithing. We say faith, and we say, and then in the verb, we talk about believing, right? We don't have a verb for faith. But in the Greek, it's actually the same word every time. It's the same root every time. And, and, and so we actually, the, our translations don't help us because often when the word faith is there, it inserts the word belief uh, when, it's in the form, when it's in the verb form. And when we hear the word believe, and even when we hear, hear the word faith, we automatically interpret this word in our modern empirical individualistic mindset. But that's not what it means. Faith, the word pistis, has connotations of faithfulness, fidelity, trust. It does not really mean belief as we understand it. It does not really mean verifiable evidence to a rational mind. It means trust. Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So now when you read that with that understanding, it's like, we're not justified by what we do. We're actually justified by trust. Trust. 
Let me add another curveball here. The other challenge that we have with this word, especially in this context, pistis, pistis here can either be objective or subjective, um, which basically means that the object of faith or the person doing the action here can either be us or Jesus in this verse and in other verses like it. The faithful, faith in Christ can also be translated as faithfulness of Christ. And there's more and more scholars today uh, that are actually rereading this Greek text because they, they've recognized we've read it with our scientific, empirical, modern mind and have gone back to the biblical times and said, what does it actually mean? What is it actually, how do we actually understand this? And it might be more likely speaking about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ rather than our faith in Jesus Christ. And so the, we end up having something like this, that we are not justified by our own faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of Jesus. We're not justified. So, so how, we ought, how it reads here in the NIV, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. If we understand faith as a trust word, and Jesus is trustworthy, we are justified, we're made right with God, not because we ourselves are trustworthy, but because Jesus has been shown trustworthy and faithful. Faith is not marked by reasoning, but by trust. But don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that faith is unreasonable, it simply means that there's a limit to reason, which our world and our culture doesn't quite understand. I'm not against science, I'm not against empiricism, I'm not against individualism, per se. I'm simply saying that when science has had its final word, that there's still more to be said. We have misunderstood faith as a what word instead of a who word. We've understood faith as a what word instead of a who word, as primarily beliefs about God rather than trust in God. Thomas explains, my Lord and my God. Thomas finally sees Jesus as who he really is, God himself with flesh on. So this does not mean that there is no mystery or doubt. I'm sure this brought about all sorts of questions and mysteries for Thomas. But rather, Thomas recognizes that Jesus is worthy of his trust. The sin of certainty is a sin because this pattern of thinking sees God short by keeping the creator captive to what we are able to comprehend. When we believe that we have to have certain certainty for faith, when certitude becomes our, our, our basis for faith, then all of a sudden we put ourselves in the position of God and we only believe in God when he becomes understandable to us. And scripture is saying that God is way bigger than a reasoning, way bigger than a rationality, and it's marked by trust, not simply reason. Truth is not just an idea, but truth is a person. Can you say that? Truth is a person. Doubt is not an enemy of faith. It's only an enemy of faith if we equate faith with certitude. You see that? So we, we kind of position like faith and doubt as like these are enemies of each other, but they're only enemies if we understand faith as certitude and certainty. 
If we actually recognize faith as trust, doubt and faith aren't opposites. They're not fighting each other. The Christian response to modernity was to try and make the Bible into a textbook, and that's, that's not the answer. The, our, our, our response to modernity is actually not to rely solely on our rationality and our reason, although we celebrate science and the development of science. We just recognize it only goes so far, and where it stops short, we still continue to trust. We know this is true, uh, that there's more than just logic to relationship if we understand Christian faith as relationship. Because uh, my beliefs about a person, about you, about uh, somebody are unavoidable. We always have opinions about someone. And they're often helpful in understanding the relationship. But they may not always be right. You know, I think of, for those of you who are married, you have ideas about your wife or your husband and they're strong ideas, but you, they're not always right, are they? And the relationship with them is not dependent on you being right, being sure, being certain you got your spouse all figured out. The relationship is more than that. Relationship needs to be built on trust. So, when we understand faith in this modern way, church can become a place that's unsafe for the spiritually lost or the people that are searching, the people that have doubts. But if we understand faith as a, as a relationship, if we understand faith in terms of trust, then we can actually be a community where we journey together, where people that have doubts, like me, can be at home. There's one part in the story here that, as we wrap up, I want to highlight. So we talked about, um, you know, Thomas responds, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, place my hands into the wound at his side. And then it says, eight days later, the disciples were together again. Eight days later, a week later. And I think it's quite profound that Thomas stays in the faith community when he doesn't have the certitude that he's looking for. That Thomas, instead of saying, well, I don't believe it, I, I haven't seen it for myself, I haven't had this individual experience, I haven't been able to verify it, so I'm going to check out. He actually remains with the disciples, he remains in the faith community until he has a personal experience with Jesus himself. But he doesn't let that lack of personal experience, that lack of rational, verifiable evidence actually prevent him um, from engaging in the faith community. So this morning, if you have doubts, uh, I would encourage you to view that not as a challenge to your faith, but usually we have doubts when our faith is growing, when it's being relocated, when we're being challenged. And, and that's not a bad thing. It's actually something to celebrate that you're, you're growing in your faith, in your relationship with Jesus. And if, uh, if God is actually God, then we're probably going to encounter mystery and things that we don't understand that we can't explain. Is that right? And so we come up with these doubts, we have these questions, and our world says, well, if you doubt, then you can't believe. And we go to the scripture, we said, no, I can still trust and have faith. Because it's about that trust, that relationship, not about 
simply rational scientific reasoning. In Christianity, we don't confess what we believe. This is, um, you know, Brian Zan uh, writes this in his book, uh, Water to Wine. He says, in Christianity, we don't confess what we believe. We believe what we confess. Say it again. In Christianity, we don't confess what we believe. We believe what we confess. That what this is saying is that there will always be more that we confess than that we can prove. There will be more to what we confess than we can prove. The two foundations of Christianity are incarnation, Jesus comes with flesh on, and the resurrection, Jesus comes back from the dead. Prove them. You can't. They're neither verifiable or unverifiable. We will always confess more than we can prove. That's why it's faith. That's why it's trust. So the answer to empiricism you know, the pendulum has swung to this rational thinking, as I've mentioned, but the answer to empiricism is actually to engage the idea of faith again and saying it's about trust, not simply about ideas. It's about trust, and with that trust, I'm okay with a bit of mystery and question and doubt. It's not just about individualism, it's actually about community, and we learn from Thomas that when we have doubts, we don't just take off, we engage in the faith community and I believe that as we engage, as we, stay, as we remain in the faith community, that Jesus knows what we need, and he'll give us what we need, just like Thomas received what he needed. There's a story about Mother Teresa. And the, uh, it's actually a story about a Jesuit priest, uh, John Cavanaugh. And John Cavanaugh went to visit Mother Teresa, um, and uh, sorry, he wasn't a he wasn't a priest. He was a he was a he was a professor, I believe, a philosopher. Uh, uh, but John Cavanaugh went to meet Mother Teresa in India. Uh, and the story goes like this: John Cavanaugh worked for three months with Mother Teresa uh, at the house of the, the dying in Calcutta. And when he was there, the first morning there, John met Mother Teresa, and she asked him, "What can I do for you, John?" Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. He uttered a request that had long burdened him, a request that had motivated his journey to India. He said, pray that I have clarity. To that simple but sincere request, Mother Teresa said firmly, no, I will not do that. <laughs> can you imagine? Mother Teresa, what can I do for you? Pray that I have clarity. And then she looks at you, she's like, no, sorry. Like, oh. Instead... Instead, she said, clarity is the last thing that you are clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have the clarity that he was longing for, that he was looking for, she laughed and she said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had was trust. And I think sometimes we're looking for clarity, we're looking for certitude and and it's this idol in our culture that will never deliver because what you're looking for is actually trust and relationship. What you're looking for is faith. And I think that we can resonate with the father who is asking Jesus uh, to come and heal his son in Mark 9. And he says, uh, the father cried out, I do believe, 
I do have faith, Jesus, but help me overcome my unbelief. If we understand that word pistis is trust, he's saying, I do, Jesus, I do trust that you can do it, but he's being honest. He's saying there's a part of me that doesn't help me overcome that part of me too. You know, I stand here before you as someone, um, you know, I've had faith for a long time. I've gone to school at multiple points and, um, you know, I've, I've spent my career studying scripture, my school studying scripture and culture, helping other people find truth like the song refers to. Um, and I can tell you that the more and more I journey with Jesus, I don't, I don't journey into greater certitude. I journey into greater trust. And in fact, the more and more I learn, the more mystery I, I have. And I don't find doubt debilitating. I actually find it faith-giving because I don't see it as competing. Actually, see, every time I come up with a question or a doubt, I come face-to-face with the mystery of God. And I resonate with what Mother Teresa is saying is that it's not more clarity that I need. It's not more certainty that I need, but I actually just need more trust. I need more faith. And as we end this morning, I'm going to end with a prayer. Uh, We don't have a closing song this morning, and so we're going to end with a prayer. And uh, Thomas Merton prayed a prayer, and it's going to be on the screen behind me. And, And it's a... Simple, honest prayer, and I'm going to read it once, um, and then uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to read it with me after that. So um, it says, My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. Wow. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will ever, you will never leave me to face my perils alone. What a great prayer. I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And this morning, maybe you've, you've had your, you're in a season of doubt or struggling with belief. You know, maybe you're someone who, you know, has been trying to follow Jesus for a long time. And, and if you're anything like me, you've gone from certainty to uncertainty to certainty to uncertainty. And it's like this... You know, you feel like you're flip-flopping sometimes, um, and you've recognized this morning that it's more about faith than it is about um, necessarily believing all the right things. It's about trusting Jesus. Maybe you're someone this morning that has never made that decision to follow Jesus because this individualistic, empirical idea of, has actually prevented you from taking a step of faith. That this this modern mindset has, in fact, been an idol that you've worshipped instead of, you've put your trust in that instead of putting your trust in Jesus. And this morning, the invitation is simply to put your trust in Him. That it's not that it's irrational, but at some point, everybody takes a step of faith. 
The atheist takes a step of faith. A step of faith that I couldn't myself make because I don't believe, I, I don't want myself to be the final authority on anything. I'm aware enough of my own brokenness and sinfulness that I, I don't trust my own opinions on anything. My mind changes all the time. Uh, and so I long to put my faith in something beyond myself. That where science can't say anymore that I need to put my faith not in something, but in someone. And Jesus, I found, is worthy of that faith. So why don't you stand with me? Um, and as we end this morning, not in singing a song together, but in praying this prayer together, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a while or whether uh, maybe this prayer becomes a way for you to start this journey with us as a faith community, because it's not about you being an individual and following Jesus, it's about us following Jesus as a faith community, right? Uh, maybe this can be the beginning of that journey for you. So let's, let's pray this together. My Lord... God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may now nothing, nothing about it. Sorry. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. So, Father, we do confess more than we understand this morning. And we thank you that it is that way. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us to face our perils alone, Lord, that we don't have to face our doubts alone. That we believe the testimony and the witness of your disciples. That we believe the testimony of Thomas, who touched your hands and your side, who, had, who saw with his own eyes that you were resurrected. God, we believe that you came to earth in the form of a human, that you died the death that we deserved on a cross, and you conquered death and came back to life. Lord, that you have promised us that those who place their trust in you will they themselves experience resurrection as well, Lord. So we just, we confess this, uh, Lord, that you are God, that you are Lord, that what you did on the cross was enough for us. Lord, we don't put faith in ourselves and our own reasoning, but we put faith in you. So we thank you, Jesus, that you are worthy of our faith, that you are trustworthy, that you are faithful even when we're faithless. We thank you for this. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. If you'd like prayer for anything, uh, there's a, uh, I'll be available for prayer at the front here along with the prayer team. There's also a prayer station in the hallway. Uh, we invite you back next week where we continue our new series, or we start our new series, sorry, um, called Pray First. <laughs>